Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilica from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists. And I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. So um, the American Heart Association has put out multiple statements about triglyceride lowering and cardiovascular disease. And so this isn't a recent statement, uh, but uh, the last peer statement focused specifically on triglycerides and cardiovascular disease. And so one key thing is that independence of uh, triglyceride levels as a causal factor in promoting cardiovascular disease remains debatable. And so um, the reason they have made that statement is that Oftentimes, patients will have other elevations in their other lipid parameters, and it's been difficult, and and in some studies, uh, it's been demonstrated that there is an independent association, and others, uh, it hasn't. And so, um, especially at extreme levels, and we'll talk about that uh, on the next slide, uh, you can see increased cardiovascular disease, uh, but specifically uh, triglycerides separated out from other lipid parameters hasn't necessarily been demonstrated as an independent uh, causal factor. Triglyceride levels appear to promote unique information as a biomarker of risk, and then when you combine them with other specific parameter changes, especially elevated LDL and low HDL, uh, and some of the studies have focused on patients that have high triglycerides and low HDL, there has been this considered additive risk uh, that, that can be determined. Measurements of non-HDL, ApoB or both, may be especially useful in those patients with a uh, high triglyceride to HDL ratio, um, where um, abnormalities in LDL measurement may underestimate your ASCBD risk. So we know that when LDL is indirectly calculated with the Friedwald equation, that when your triglycerides are above 400, that's an inaccurate equation. And even um, when they're below 400 but elevated, you can see some underestimation of, of LDL and sometimes requires a direct measurement of LDL. So uh, looking at some of these other parameters can be helpful in assessing risk, especially with patients that have elevated triglyceride levels. So this isn't some recent data, but uh, data has demonstrated that triglycerides um, are independently associated with premature familial CHD or coronary heart disease, especially when they're uh, severely elevated. So at lower levels, um, you're seeing really not this increased association, but when patients get levels above 500 and especially above 1,000, there uh, there has been some demonstrated association of increased risk of um, CHD patients. And so this can um, be useful because uh, it funnels into some of the guideline recommendations that we'll discuss today but useful even as we know that if triglyceride levels uh, start to climb up, we could potentially see this additional increased risk in addition to other lipoproteins. Uh, One of the key components is evaluating um, secondary causes of dyslipidemia. And so secondary causes can fit into uh, essentially kind of four buckets or areas. Um, These can include diet, 
drugs or medications, disease states, and then other disorders and kind of specifically meta metabolic disorders. And so um, some of these impact LDL, some of them impact triglycerides, uh, and I've highlighted that in green on this slide. We're going to focus primarily on the the ones elevating triglycerides today, but knowing that um, you do see some other impacts um, in LDL cholesterol as well. Elevated triglycerides can be specifically linked or have been demonstrated to be elevated as people gain weight, especially if people are overweight and then progress to obese. Um, you can definitely see elevation in triglyceride values there and why some of the therapeutic lifestyle changes are focused on reducing weight very low-fat diets, and this is generally kind of acute, very low-fat diets have been linked to elevated triglyceride values. Reduction in fats is recommended, um, so reducing your fat in your diet can help lower your triglycerides, but very low-fat diets have been associated with an elevation in triglycerides. Um, high intake of refined carbohydrates, uh, and then one of the common causes um, is excessive alcohol take can uh, raise your triglyceride value as well. And so all these things should be assessed when working up a patient that presents with hypertriglyceridemia. <clears throat> From a drug standpoint, uh, there are a number of agents um, that hit the list, and I'm not going to go through these all um, one by one, uh, but uh, some of the ones that pop out, uh, I think uh, if you're thinking of using a bile acid sequestrant uh, in a patient to lower cholesterol values and more specifically LDL, you do need to factor that in because bile acid sequestrants can actually elevate triglycerides. Um, oral estrogens are a very common um, drug that's been associated with triglyceride elevations, uh, protease inhibitors uh, as well, um, some uh, immunosuppressant agents have been associated, and then some of the common agents we see in cardiovascular disease, so uh, beta blockers and thiazides have been uh, shown to elevate triglycerides, but generally it's not in a clinic, clinical meaningful level, so there is that association, but some are more pronounced than others. From a disease state standpoint, ruling out uh, some of these other causes, and specifically nephrotic syndrome and chronic renal failure, are um, are associated with elevation in triglycerides, especially as patients progress to end-stage renal disease. Um, common uh, disorders or uh, metabolism disorders, so poorly co controlled diabetes is very commonly uh, associated with some elevation in triglyceride values. Uh, hypothyroidism should be ruled out. That's true for both uh, elevation in LDL as well as triglycerides. Uh, we already talked about weight gain and obesity can be associated, and then you can see elevation in triglycerides during pregnancy. So just wanted to uh, kind of focus everyone on some of the classifications of triglyceride values and how uh, they've been defined uh, in the most recent American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, uh, and multi-society uh, cholesterol guidelines. Uh, and so normal triglyceride values at a milligram per deciliter standpoint is considered less than 150. Um, these guidelines have defined moderate Hypertriglyceridemia is anyone between 175 and 499. And then greater than 500, greater than or equal to 500 is severe hypertriglyceridemia. And so um, a couple notes here. And so the guidelines and many guidelines for many years have called out uh, treating patients with severe hypertriglyceridemia to help prevent pancreatitis from developing. And that's kind of the primary role when it's very elevated. 
this moderate hypertriglyceridemia range is where uh, we're going to talk about where we've seen recent data uh, that's shown a reduction in future CV events in this population and some very specific uh, components to that. And so we're going to talk about what that data uh, exists now. So first wanted to uh, come back to the 2018 cholesterol uh, guidelines. Uh, and so these guidelines um, do have specific recommendations about hypertriglyceridemia treatment. And so wanted to ground us with that and then we'll delve into some of the recent data and some of the newer guidelines since these guidelines were published that have specific recommendations about uh, icosapodethyl uh, that we'll focus on. So if you go to these guidelines, um, and just to orient everyone, class one recommendations are going to be your strongest level of recommendation um, that exists, uh, and your level of evidence A is going to be your most strong uh, level. Um, B is uh, essentially means you have one um, one trial, and you don't necessarily have multiple trials. Usually, if there's a level B recommendation, uh, and um, subsequently C would be um, expert opinion. Uh, and so we have one specific class one recommendation as it relates to um, adults, and they define adults greater than 20 with moderate hypertriglyceridemia. So that's that 175 to 499. Clinicians should address and treat lifestyle factors. So that's trying to rule out some of those secondary causes, uh, and especially trying to think through, do they have disease states or comorbidities that might be contributing to their triglyceride level, as well as do they have medications that they're taking that might increase their triglyceride level. And so thinking through that will be very important. Um, further, they go on to say, so if you're a, that's uh, a class 2A recommendation, so not as strong as the class 1, um, but adults between the age of 40 to 75 with moderate or severe hypertriglyceridemia and a risk score of 7.5% or greater, it's reasonable to reevaluate ACVD risk after lifestyle and secondary factors are addressed to then consider um, a persistently elevated triglyceride level as a factor favoring initiation or intensification of statins. Um, and so still having a statin-focused um, approach to this, but uh, if you can modify and change some of these lifestyle interventions um, and your ACV score is not extremely elevated, uh, that can be done first to modify and, and then repeat that lipid assessment uh, to see if um, you do need to intensify or initiate statin therapy and or whether you need to initiate uh, treatment uh, with medications for hypertriglyceridemia. Um, they have a similar recommendation, so the same group, when your risk score is 7.5% or higher, it's reasonable to address reversible causes of high triglycerides and to initiate statin therapy concurrently. So they have this uh, recommendation where you can try to do this first and then initiate uh, therapy or initiate therapy concurrently while you're treating these high triglyceride values. They further go on to say, uh, in those adults with severe hypertriglyceridemia, uh, and so they define that at 500 or higher, but they specifically call out those that have triglycerides of 1,000 or higher, that it's reasonable to identify and address other causes. So ruling out those secondary causes or lifestyle changes that can be made, and if triglycerides are persistently elevated um, to implement a low-fat diet, avoid 
refined carbohydrates, alcohol, uh, and then initiation of, they specifically call out fibrate therapy, but also talk about consumption of omega-3 fatty acids in this recommendation here. And so uh, talking about treating those with a triglyceride-lowering medication, uh, especially if triglycerides are of a, a, of a thousand or higher, but uh, could be indicated if 500 or higher, um, if lifestyle interventions are not um, mitigating the, the elevation in, in high triglycerides. So there are three uh, prescription products available for omega-3 fatty acids. All are FDA approved for severe hypertriglyceridemia. So that's how all of these I got initially approved on the market of treating patients with triglycerides of 500 or higher. Um, and so there is some differences between these. And so two of the, the agents, so um, the omega-3 uh, acid ethyl, ethyl esters, the first one here, you can see has both EPA and DHA. Uh, and those are the two omega-3 fatty acid components that we're looking for in these products that are most effective at lowering triglyceride values. Um, and the second one is icosapentethyl, and we'll talk about some of the recent data with cardiovascular disease with that agent, uh, but that is only EPA um, and does not contain DHA. And so those both have similar dosing. So essentially four grams a day is the dose uh, for these agents. And then omega-3 carboxyl acids or epinova uh, is the third option. And that includes both EPA and DHA. And so we'll talk about some of the differences when you have both EPA and DHA present versus just EPA. And, and maybe that is a driver for some of the differences we've seen in clinical trial data. So what is the data uh, relative to omega-3 fatty acids for the primary and secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease? So um, just a couple years ago, uh, there was a Cochrane systematic review that looked at 79 randomized controlled trials uh, at that time. Uh, and from that analysis of reviewing all of those trials, um, the authors of this review concluded a couple things. Um, First, they concluded that there was moderate and high-quality evidence that suggested increasing EPA and DHA had little or no effect on mortality or cardiovascular health. And one of the key things with that is in this trial, when they in this analysis of trials, uh, most of the evidence was from supplemental trials. Um, and so uh, wasn't the prescription products. And so that is one of the potential limitations of, of interpreting that data uh, as it wasn't linked to a lot of the pr uh, prescription high-dose products that we see on the market today um, that are prescribed for patients. Secondly, previous suggestions of benefit from EPA and DHA supplements appear uh, to spring um, from trials with higher risk of bias. And so there was some bias concern with some of those supplement trials. Uh, and then they thirdly talked about that the low quality evidence suggests that alpha linoleic acid or ALA may slightly reduce CV event risk, uh, CHD mortality and arrhythmia, but there was low quality evidence in this area. And so they didn't make any strong conclusions there. So that jumps us to what are some of the potential mechanisms for cardioprotection with omega-3 fatty acids? So uh, we know that in high doses, they can lower triglycerides, and we know that triglycerides at high levels have been linked or associated with um, cardiovascular disease. Uh, and so maybe that's one of the pieces, but it's probably not the full story. Uh, there's a couple other um, 
thoughts of why they may be seeing benefit. So um, there could be some antithrombotic effects that are um, demonstrated uh, with these agents. Um, some of the more recent thought is that there's this membrane stabilization effects or kind of plaque uh, stabilization potentially uh, with EPA over DHA. Uh, fourthly, there's uh, consideration for their potential to have anti-inflammatory actions, uh, potentially altered altered prostaglandin synthesis, and then uh, potentially some antiarrhythmic actions based on some of the studies that have been done. So there are a number of plausible uh, mechanisms, and probably it's a combination of some of these where we're seeing benefit uh, in clinical trials. So that leads us to the REDUCED uh, study. And so this was a study um, published um, in 2019 uh, and um, just wanted to review this because this is this study that's demonstrated for the first time a omega-3 uh, fatty acid product um, has been able to lower or demonstrate lowering of cardiovascular events. And so it was a trial of just over 8,000 patients, um, half got icosapentaethyl at four grams per day, the other half got placebo, uh, and they were followed up for just under uh, five years. The primary endpoint was a composite endpoint, so it included cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary vascularization, and hospitalization for unstable angina. So a large composite endpoint. Uh, and then key secondary endpoints uh, included cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and all the subsequent individual components of the primary endpoint. Uh, this was a double-blinded study. Uh, and so key pieces to keep in mind with this trial are that patients had to be uh, over the age of 45 with established cardiovascular disease, so a secondary prevention group, or over the age of 50 with diabetes um, with at least one additional risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but um, for primary prevention cohort. So it included both secondary and primary prevention patients. Um, and so most patients had in the diabetes group at least two risk factors um, that were enrolled in the trial. Fasting triglycerides needed to be uh, greater than 135, but less than 500. So fitting into that moderate uh, triglyceride elevation range, uh, and your LDL needed to be anywhere between 40 uh, and less, uh, 40 and 100 uh, on uh, stable statin therapy, uh, and you could be on azetamibe as well. So some patients were on statins plus azetamibe, many were just on statin therapy uh, alone. And over the length of this trial, what this demonstrated was in their primary composite endpoint, there was a statistically significant uh, difference in this primary composite. Uh, and so as you can see here, uh, hazard ratio 0.75, uh, so basically dropping um, the relative risk uh, between the two groups uh, by 25%, uh, also resulting in an, an absolute risk reduction of, of uh 4.8% between the, the groups. And so as you can see here, a pretty pronounced number needed to treat um, when you look at um, this trial data. Uh, and so this is key as this is the first omega-3 fatty acid um, study that's demonstrated cardiovascular benefit in this patient that's already on uh, maximum tolerated statin therapy, with, th statin therapy with or without azetamibe in an established ASCVD population as well as diabetic patients uh, with multiple risk factors. If you look at all of the individual uh, components, uh, all of those actually demonstrated 
reductions in events. So if you look at uh, cardiovascular death and non-fatal MI, that was statistically significant. Um, revascularization was uh, statistically significant. Cardiovascular uh, <clears throat> death was as well. The only one in the large study uh, that wasn't uh, statistically significant was death from any cause. Um, but uh, cardiovascular death was uh, significantly lower in this trial. A couple of things to keep in mind with this study are, um, what is the driver of why pure EPA versus EPA and DHA um, combined haven't uh, demonstrated this uh, event lowering? And so some of the hypothesis about this is that these patients got very high EPA levels. And so their EPA levels basically increased by about um, 400% uh, in the study. And so is it linked to high, these high EPA levels that drove some of this benefit? And is that linked to some of those proposed mechanisms that we talk about as one of the, one of the hypotheses because um, it demonstrated in this high-risk population pretty much significant benefit across multiple different cardiovascular endpoints. This led uh, to some updated recommendations by um, other organizations outside of AHA, ACC, from a guideline standpoint. Uh, so the NLA, so the National Lipid Association, uh, developed a position statement for the use of icosapen ethyl in high and very high risk patients. And so they specifically said uh, and followed the inclusion criteria of the clinical trial. So patients over the age of 45 with clinical ACVD or 50 year older with type two diabetes and at least one additional risk factor and your triglycerides between 135 to 499. So kind of fitting that moderate hypertriglyceridemia group on max tolerated statin with or without azetamibe, that uh, treatment is recommended with hycosapentethyl. And so on the right of this slide, you can see kind of a summary table of what those risk factors are uh, in that um, diabetic uh, cohort. So you could have advanced aged, um, in that group, you could be a cigarette smoker, have hypertension, low HDL. So a number of factors that would uh, reach that at least one additional risk factor in addition to having type 2 diabetes. And so uh, one thing that's um, occurred with the American Diabetes Association is, as many of you are probably familiar, uh, they update their recommendations that get usually released online uh, in December and then subsequently published in their uh, January supplement uh, of each year. And so with their most recent update uh, in 2020, um, they added this specific recommendation in their standards of medical care for patients with diabetes. And so uh, they specifically said if a patient has a patient with ASCVD or cardiovascular risk factors on a statin, with controlled LDL cholesterol but elevated triglycerides, the addition of icosapenethyl can be considered to reduce cardiovascular risk. And so I think one of the key things to keep in mind with this recommendation is they definitely highlighted need to be on a statin with controlled LDL cholesterol uh, and having this moderate elevation in, in triglyceride values. And so it still highlights that we still should have LDL as a primary target. And so we shouldn't forget about or uh, move past statin therapy in these patients. But uh, once that's been maximized, then this is an additional agent uh, that could lower risk further uh, because we know these patients have a high uh, residual risk for future cardiovascular events, especially if they've had a previous one. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. 
It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.